Republicans who are skeptical about the 2020 election results have argued that hand-counting ballots is the way forward in Nevada and other states around the country. Although some other democracies do hand-count votes, our next guest says the method doesn't work so well in the U.S., where ballots can be, among other things, very long. Plus, side-by-side experiments show that voting machines are significantly more accurate than counting ballots by hand. We're checking out the latest info on election machines versus hand-counting ballots, and you could join in at 800-642-1234. Do you have thoughts on how ballots, once cast, should be counted? What do you think of the idea of hand-counting? What do you want to know about how vote-counting machines work? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or email ideas at WPR.org. Barry Burden is a professor of political science and director of the Elections Research Center at UW-Madison. He wrote a piece on ballot counting for the conversation. Barry, welcome back to Central Time. Hey, Rob. Glad to be back. Thanks. Before we dig into uh, the nuts and bolts of counting our ballots, there have been calls for hand counting, not overwhelmingly, even within the Republican Party. But how much are you hearing these kind of calls saying, let's stop using tabulating machines, let's count by hand? I would say it's a rumble out there, especially in swing states from 2020, where some voters, uh, many of them Donald Trump supporters, are are still suspicious that voting machines had something to do with the loss for the Republicans in 2020. Uh, And and there's some sort of concern about the secrecy of how those operate and that hand counting ballots, at least for them, would just be a more transparent, open way to do it. And in fact, the U.S. has has relied on counting of paper ballots in its past, in the 1800s in particular. Can you talk about the rise of different kinds of voting machines? In your piece, I learned they've been around longer than I might have thought. Yeah, as the country grew in the 1800s and early 1900s, it became a huge task to count up the results of races. Uh, Ballots got longer. Americans elect all kinds of offices, from president through members of Congress, state legislators, many county officials, judges, ballot issues, you name it. And as the population got bigger, the number of races became longer. Uh, I think election officials very naturally looked for some way to automate that process, and they began using tabulating machines. And we've been using them for more than a century in many places around the country. We sometimes see uh, criticism of the American uh, voting uh, system, uh, comparing it to places like France. Uh, off of the call is, hey, they, they seem to hand count ballots in France. And when we, they have a big presidential election, they could turn it around pretty quickly. What's different about that French presidential election than our, our elections here? It is amazing. They count the ballots by hand at each polling place. And it's largely done that night. Uh, But a couple of things are different. One is the polling places tend to be small, so not many voters casting ballots at one location. Uh, The other, the main one, is that there's really just one race on the ballot. It might be just a race for president or just a parliamentary election. It's hard to imagine in the United States having a ballot with only one contest on it, uh, but that's common in other parliamentary systems. And so it's just much easier to stack those ballots up. You can put all of the votes for one party in one pile and the votes for the other party in the other pile. Uh, and and tabulate them pretty quickly. You just can't do that when there are many races on the ballot. And actually, each voter's ballot is customized for them to reflect the school district and the county and the state legislative district in which they live. And so the ballots could never be stacked. You would have to work through each race independently and go through the ballots as many times as there are races on the ballot. What would that mean if uh, a large uh, voting precinct tried to do hand counts? What would that mean 
first of all, for speed, for the time it would take to turn that around? Oh, it's so much slower. Uh, <laughs> humans humans don't work quickly. And if they do, it, they're probably inaccurate. So humans have to go through this process slowly. And there tend to be observers or other people watching, and, and that can slow down the process as well. Uh, tabulators are designed to be fast. So uh, one example, after the 2020 presidential election in Georgia, there was a full recount by hand of several million votes for president there uh, with huge staff devoted to this all across the state, staff that don't exist on election day. And that took five days to do one race. <laughs> so give you a sense of the scale. If you've got, say, 20 races on the ballot, this could go on for weeks or longer. Talking to Barry Burden, professor of political science and director of the Elections Research Center at UW-Madison, talking with us about hand-counting ballots versus machine counting. And you can join in at 800-642-1234. Do you have questions about the pros and cons of uh, different methods of counting our ballots? Do you think U.S. elections should be more transparent in some way? What kind of changes would you like to see? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. We'll pick up the conversation coming up here on Central Time. It's Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. We're picking up our conversation with UW-Madison political science professor Barry Burden about a push in some circles anyway to hand count paper ballots and why hand counting ballots doesn't necessarily mean a more accurate tally and why it can slow things down. You can join in with your thoughts or questions at 800-642-1234. Let's bring on a caller now. Chris is with us in Menominee. Chris, hi. Hi. Uh, so my wife and I are involved in elections every year, if not every other year, rather. And the motion of hand-counting ballots just adds a, another layer of complexity. We've been doing elections as we've been doing them for quite some time and proven to be accurate. I would say that if conservatives want to bring this argument, bring it on the docket, not in front of the mob. Uh, so I, I just think anytime you look to consolidate power, you just look to add more corruption to the process. Chris, thanks for the call. Uh, Barry, one of Chris's points there worries about accuracy of hand counting. We, You and I talked about the speed issue. What do we know about how hand counting does with accuracy versus machine tabulation? Well, we do know it's less accurate. Uh, again, humans are good at lots of things, but counting up millions of ballots in a very consistent manner, uh, paying attention is difficult. And we have a little experiment to that effect in Wisconsin Listeners might remember the 2011 Supreme Court race in Wisconsin was very close, and there was a statewide recount called for, and all those ballots were counted by hand very carefully, just one race after the election. That's a, that's a time when hand counting is really useful. Uh, but in the original election, on election day, some communities used electronic machines, and some had kind of optical scan ballot scanners, and some others actually had humans doing the counting on election day. And so we could compare how each of those did in terms of the accuracy compared to the recount. And the, the human counted ballots on election night were the least accurate. They were more likely to be off from the true vote compared to the ones that were tabulated by machines. So that's just one experiment from our state, but there have been other kinds of studies that have shown that pretty repeatedly. If, if you want accuracy, counting ballots by hand is not the way to go. Chris, thanks for the call. Terry joins us now in Fifield. Terry, hi. Hey, hi. With this new proposed uh, tiered voting system, how would that work on the counting? And if it had to go to a hand count or recount, what would that do to the system? 
Terry. Thank you. Terry, thanks for the call, uh, Barry. Uh, I talked actually to a Republican and Democrat co-sponsor of legislation that would have a final five uh, ranked choice system. Uh, they made the case that, yeah, the voting machines we work, they are programmed, uh, flip a switch, basically, a little more complicated than that, and they will count that ranked choice of voting. Is that your understanding? That's my understanding. Most of the major machines have capacity for different kinds of ballots. That would include ranked choice ballots. That would include races where voters are allowed to pick more than one candidate, say for a city council or county commission. Uh, I think there's some learning for voters to do and maybe for election officials and poll workers to do. Uh, But the machines, I think, will have no trouble with that. Thanks a lot for that call. Barry, another part of your piece I wanted to get into is uh, that the fact that there is a paper ballot that we can go back and double check. I remember there was a stretch where some of the voting machines around the country, uh, there wasn't that paper trail afterward. How important is it to have uh, each voter's ballot on a piece of paper? Well, that's one thing actually the two major parties agree on and security experts do as well. The, The ideal system has paper involved. Either the voter is marking a paper ballot that gets fed into a machine. That's what's done in most of Wisconsin, actually most of the country or a voter is marking on a screen, but then those choices are printed out on a paper ballot that's fed into a machine. Uh, In some other cases, there are touchscreen machines that have a kind of paper receipt that gets printed. So today it's well over 90, it might be 95% of American voters are casting ballots either on paper or with a verified paper backup uh, that can be used for audits and recounts. So that's really essential work. So we're very close to 100% coverage Um, So it's really, you know, I I think there's some confusion sometimes for members of the public. It's not voting on machines or casting a ballot through a device necessarily. It's really the machines doing the tabulating Mm -hmm. of the votes and the voters are making the marks. um, And there are now a a lot of good systems for doing that. And Barry, some of the, I think, wilder claims about the 2020 election in particular involved international hacking uh, conspiracies and campaigns. That paper trail, though, uh, even if you hack a machine, it doesn't change the pieces of paper, right? That is a a fail-safe in the system. It really is. And the paper is used uh, already by election officials after Election Day. Uh, In just about every state, there is an audit of some kind that's automatically done after every election. And those audits draw paper ballots that voters have actually marked in most cases to compare to the tabulations of the machines. Uh, There are also some tests done before Election Day that the public can observe where paper ballots are put through machines and we make sure that they're tabulating correctly and the logic of all that's correct. Uh, In Wisconsin, uh, random communities are selected after Election Day and their ballots are collected by state election of county and state election officials and and recounted. And it's the paper that makes that possible. So there really are valuable parts of the process where counting by hand can be useful and it's mostly recounts and audits. But Election night tabulation of several dozen races is just not the time for it. And Barry, just in our last minute or so, uh, election officials are always trying to make things uh, more efficient, more secure, more accurate. Are there uh, possible changes you'd want to see looked at? Well, I would love to see us get to 100 percent paper or paper backups for every voter in the country. Uh, Again, we're very close or just a few places that are holding out for various reasons. Uh, and and to help voters understand that's what's happening. Um, you know, I think a lot of the misinformation and skepticism just comes from a lack of information about the system. Uh, but there are these ways in which election officials demonstrate the accuracy of their machines and allow voters to get very close to the process 
And um, hopefully more members of the public and groups who are still have some skepticism will take advantage of those to get up close and ask questions. Barry, we'll leave it there. Thanks again for joining us today. Glad to be here. Thank you. That's Barry Burden, professor of political science and director of the Elections Research Center at UW-Madison. He talked to us today about ballot counting and his piece on the potential downsides of hand-counting ballots. You can read that online at The Conversation. You're listening to Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. It's Food Friday, and no matter where in the world you tune in to Central Time, chances are you're in or at least near a culture that cooks with rice. It's a staple food across the globe with varieties and uses that many of us aren't often exposed to. Its simplicity, its versatility inspired our next guest to open rice bowl restaurants and write a love letter to rice in the form of a new cookbook. J.J. Johnson is an award-winning chef and cookbook author who created the restaurant Field Trip in New York City. He's appeared on cooking shows on the Food Network, Netflix, and HBO Max. He hosts his own show called Just Eats with Chef J.J. His new cookbook is called The Simple Art of Rice, Recipes from Around the World for the Heart of Your Table. J.J., thanks a lot for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. You got started. How's your day going? Pretty good and better now that we're going to talk about rice. Uh, you got started, yes, yes. JJ, with cooking early. You write, and you got started with rice early. Can you talk about some of your childhood memories of rice? You know, um, I was on. I was in the kitchen with my grandmother all the time. Um, I would stand up on a milk crate. We would. I would peel some vegetables. <laughs> I would wash the rice. Um, and I was young. I was like five or six years old. Um, my grandmother made the kitchen fun. She would play loud music. She had my great, great aunts with her in the kitchen and always the table at the end always had a beautiful rice dish on it. I mean, you can smell the stock rumbling, uh, the herbs chopping, uh, getting mixed into that rice. Um, in, in the, in my cookbook, the simple art of rice, I dedicate a recipe uh, of hers called BB soupy rice, which is a Puerto Rican dish called also Um, that I loved as a kid, that I love as an adult, that's beautiful on a rainy day. Um, but she would also make paella and cast iron pan. She would make chicken with rice and beans. I mean, those were some of my fondest memories as a kid. Uh, and the rice was always at the center of the table with our large family around it. And JJ, you end up going to the Culinary Institute of America and working in a lot of restaurants of like, I guess, American cuisine. And even though we have so many rice options in this country, in those venues, rice, you say, is kind of an afterthought if they talked about it at all. Why didn't rice, I don't know, get uh, higher prominence in those uh, culinary institutions? I, you know, you, you, you call it out, right? Like at everybody's table, rice is there if it's the perfect pot of rice or the unperfect pot of rice. But in the restaurants I worked in, the the meal that we all would sit around the table at for restaurants is called family meal. And rice was always there. It was beautiful. It could be Spanish rice. It could be Jollof rice. And the rice was so good. I would always wonder, why hasn't this rice from this cook make it to the table? Because everybody's eating it from the owners, <laughs> to the chefs. It just made no sense. But, you know, rice has deep history here in our country. It was a right. It's a it was a cash crop at one point. Um, people have told us it's not good for us. And that's what I'm trying to change in the book, The Simple Art of Rice, that rice is easy, makes your life easier. It is easy to cook and it can, it is good for you if you change your rice habits. All right, let's get some advice on making perfect uh, rice. Now, of course, rice cookers, uh, you you say those are just fine. But if we're making rice in a pot, let's say it's a long grain white rice. 
you know, people worry it's going to be too mushy or I'm going to burn the bottom of it or whatever. What's the key to making it come out as close to just right as we can? Okay, so super simple. You have to wash your rice first. You have to do that. You have to wash the rice so the water runs clear. And remember, rice doubles in size. Most of us are putting rice in a too small of a pot. So the top is hard and the bottom is mushy. So I recommend a two-quart pot. Uh, that's about a four cups of rice can fit in there. Um, so you want to put two cups of rice in there. You want to pat it down. And then you want to take your third finger and put it on top of the rice. And then pour your water or your liquid right to your first knuckle. Now, it doesn't matter if your hand is bigger than mine or smaller than <laughs> mine. It's going to work every time. And then you put a top on it. You put it on medium heat. It takes about 25 minutes to cook. Don't stir it. Don't shake it. Don't look at it. Remember, it's not pasta. It's rice. It wants to be left alone. All right. Now, that's the basics. Let's get into a recipe now. You care, You shared a couple with us. We've got them online at WPR.org slash Food Friday. Now, this picture, I've been staring at it all day, and I want to eat this one, probably this weekend. Curried rice and chickpeas with eggs. This looks you know, not super complicated. Can you tell us a little bit about this dish? You know, this is a simple dish. This is what I call everything that's in your pantry, right? <laughs> you have chickpeas in a can or they're frozen. You have some type of long grain rice. You have onions. You have curry spice that you're probably trying to figure out what to do with it. This brings a little bit of old deli from India into your kitchen. Um, you put all these things in the pot. It's about five to six items. You make a beautiful sunny side up egg on the side. When this pot of rice is done, you fluff it, you put it in a bowl, you drop that egg on top, and you swoosh that egg yolk around. And I'm telling you, you get the beautiful fatness from the egg yolk. You get some spices from the curry. You get that beautiful earthiness from the chickpeas. And this is a good dish to put on the side with maybe another protein. Or if you're a vegetarian, this could be your one-hit wonder pot that we everybody will fall in love with. Food Friday. We are talking to J.J. Johnson, author of the new cookbook, The Simple Art of Rice, Recipes from Around the World for the Heart of Your Table. If you're hungry, you can find that recipe at WPR.org slash Food Friday. J.J., let's talk about rice variety. You know, growing up, you might have seen white rice and instant white rice. There's more and more, but we're just starting to knock on the door of the variety of rice around the world. How big is the rice world? The rice world is extremely big. But the rice here in our country is is big as well. Um, You know, America, rice was a cash crop um, at one point. And in a lot of nooks and crannies in America, there's rice grown. I mean, America's rice is Carolina gold rice. If you've never had it, you should Google it and you should figure out how to get it mailed right to your house. Um, It's a beautiful rice grain that comes from the Gullah Geechee, South Carolina area of America. But in, in, in the backyards of a lot of people, in the deltas of Mississippi, in Arkansas, in Minnesota, in California, there's a lot of rice and a lot of rice that has, that has a lot of history. Um, and there's beautiful grains that we talk about in the simple art of rice. But, you know, we should change the rice we're eating. I don't want anybody to eat enriched bleached rice anymore because there's such a beautiful grains out there that we should be embracing. You share a story in the book, JJ. You wanted to get some of the rice that's native to Africa here in the United States. You were eventually <laughs> successful when you actually went to Africa and brought it back. Tell us a little bit about that. And, and are we starting to see it actually get imported here? So, you know, what I did was I I studied, I, I was in Ghana and I was cooking. 
uh, in Ghana and Accra 10 years ago when I started to research rice really heavily. And what I learned was that there's two yellow brick roads of rice. There's the West African rice, and then there's the Chinese rice. Um, and most of us, when we think about rice, we go automatically to China. But at one point, West Africa was fueling the world with rice. And all the rice that has come across the Atlantic is through is from West Africa. So, you know, hill rice in Trinidad, uh, you know, Carolina gold rice or Charleston gold rice in the Gullah Geechee Islands, uh, Delta, the rice of Delta in, in Louisiana and Mississippi. All that rice has come from uh, from West Africa and is being grown here now. So. You know, West Africa is not exporting rice at the moment. Most of the rice they're eating there is basmati rice, unless you live in the hills of in West Africa, like in Ghana or Nigeria. Um, and I think everybody around the country is realizing that rice can help with climate change and the practicing of consumption, consuming better rice uh, can help us all. JJ, one thing I used to like to do a lot, especially when the kids are still in the house, is make a lot of rice and have it for leftovers. But sometimes, you know, it doesn't look that appetizing in the fridge. Uh, it feels a little dry. You have some advice on making our leftover rice better. And actually, some of your recipes, you say, work better with leftover rice. Can you talk about that a little? Oh, yes. If you're if you're a fried rice lover, you need one to two day old rice. You can't make fried rice with a fresh pot of rice. So in the book, I have Nigerian style lamb fried rice or egg, Chinese egg fried rice. You need that leftover pot of rice. And who says you can't make rice with salads? So I do a beautiful brown and farro rice with prosciutto in it um, or black rice with mangoes and endives. So that's the beautiful thing for me when it comes to rice is that it's it makes our lives easier because you never are making just one small pot of rice. You always have this leftover. And what I do with my kids, we take the leftover rice and we throw it in our waffle batter. And we have beautiful rice waffles in the morning. Um, that's a big family tradition that we keep alive with, with my Southern heritage um, that, that we truly love. Now, we're just about at the end of our conversation. Good time for, J.J., some dessert. And another recipe you shared with us, a coconut tahini, wait for it, Rice Krispie treat. I love the sound of that. I never would have thought of that. Tell us a little bit about this dessert treat. I mean, who doesn't love Rice Krispies? You just got (laughs) excited about Rice Krispies. It's a childhood memory. We all love it. And this one, I'm, I'm just taking some fun flavors. I always have coconut in my house. I, I, had, I was fortunate to cook in, in Israel and Jerusalem at one point, and I, I fell in love with tahini. And coconut and tahini go so well that I wanted to put this in Rice Krispie Treats. This is something fun that you can get a big family in the kitchen with. You can make your own Rice Krispie Treats. You can incorporate some new flavors. Or I like to give out treats at the PTA meetings or when friends come over to take home. This is your go-to dish. JJ, we'll leave it there. Thanks again for joining us today. 
Thank you. That's J.J. Johnson, chef, restaurateur, and cookbook author who hosts the show Just Eats with Chef J.J. He was with us today to share his latest cookbook. It's called The Simple Art of Rice, Recipes from Around the World for the Heart of Your Table. We've got two of those many, many recipes online at WPR.org slash Food Friday. Got those rice recipe treats. Uh, and then one I asked for, I'll be honest, this curried rice and chickpeas with eggs. It looks fantastic. Find them at WPR.org slash Food Friday. Make them this weekend.